So today is the last part of our sermon series called Weightless. This is part five of five. We've been talking about forgiving ourselves and forgiving our enemies. And today we're going to talk about just how much is enough when it comes to forgiveness. What's the limit? You know what I mean? How many times are you expected to forgive the same person again and again for the same offense? Do y'all have any repeat offenders in your life? Maybe. So we all kind of agree that forgiveness is good, but how much are we expected to just lay down and, and act like nothing's happening? You know, at what point does our will to forgive become weakness? You know, and at what point is it, is it enough? That's the question we're um, wrestling with today. I invite you to take um, your study guides. If you find those helpful, those will help you get um, into this sermon and, and really um, stay with me where I am in, in the sermon today. So the thing about forgiving repeat offenders is this. They're usually not your enemies, are they? Usually an enemy will hurt you once or, you know, a couple times and, and it's over. Your repeat offenders are on your team usually. <laughs> They're the ones closest to you. They're the ones, you know, you live with, the one you're sitting with right now maybe. Some of you couples out there or friends or whatever, like they can be a parent. They can be a child of yours. They can be a friend of yours, a spouse. But usually if they're repeat offenders, they're the ones who just keep doing things the same way that you don't agree with, and they don't plan to change how they're doing things. And you have to decide whether to actively forgive what they're doing or whether to throw up your hands and say, I'm cursed, I'm with this person, but I can't do anything <laughs> about what they're doing to drive me crazy. How many times is enough? The apostle Peter asked Jesus that very question in Matthew 18. If you're looking for a way, like a roadmap to forgiveness in the Christian worldview, it's Matthew 18. And Peter asks Jesus a question, and he's, he's asking this question to be a goody two-shoes, to be a Boy Scout. He's coming with that kind of mentality. He says to Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Again, not my enemy, somebody that I care about. How many times? Up to seven times? But Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So when, when Peter comes and asks Jesus this, seven seems like too much. Can you hear it in the, in the way that he asked the question? Up to seven times, as many as seven times? And that's because the tradition he was raised in taught him the common rabbinic teaching of his day in the synagogues, we have this written down, was that it was acceptable to forgive someone up to three times for something that they've done. But anything more than that uh, just was unacceptable. It was too much. And I, I think that's kind of how we look at forgiveness, is the way the rabbis taught Peter. And even that can be a little much for us because, you know, we might forgive you once or we might forgive you twice. We kind of look at forgiveness the same way President W. did back, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago in the video you're about to see. Check this There's out. an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame 
We can't get fooled again. Who misses that guy? Be honest. Who misses him? Those were the good old days when that is what constituted a presidential scandal. <laughs> Syntax error. Man, those were the days. But listen, that's, I think, how most of us think about forgiveness. That's how most of us look at this. Like, we will be gracious to an extent. We will let it go once, maybe twice, but you're not going to keep doing the same things over and over again to us and expect us to be just as trusting and just as forgiving. Eventually, we're going to lose trust. Eventually, we're going to circle the wagons. We're going to protect our hearts. We're going to shield ourselves from whatever it is that you're doing. And so Peter's question to Jesus, how many times must I forgive a brother or sister? Totally appropriate is our, is our question too. How many times must we forgive? I can't tell you how many people who come to worship here at the story have asked me that very question. How many times? I understand we're supposed to forgive, but how many times? And Jesus, he's just not having Peter's prideful, you know, as many as seven times, Lord. Jesus is like, no. 77 times, which is just his way of saying there's no limit. There's no cap. When you are a forgiving person, there's no lid on your forgiveness. It is infinitely, universally offered. And to illustrate this, um, what happens with people who are forgiven and then don't necessarily forgive uh, without limit, um, he tells the story that kind of blows my mind. He tells the story in Matthew chapter 18. He says, Therefore, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlements, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold <laughs> was brought to him. I chuckle every time I read that line. I don't know why. I just think it's like the Old West when you use like bags of money. Or like I can't, I don't know why Jesus is so vague. There's no way to know what kind of an amount that was. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So this servant owed how much? 10,000 bags of gold. Which, I think I know what Jesus is getting at. 10,000 was the highest numerical designation in Greek. And a bag of gold might have been the highest monetary designation. I don't know. It's pretty big. And so I think what Jesus is saying is that the limit of, of God's forgiveness with us is the most of the biggest. Right? The largest thing we can think about. That's what this servant owed the king. He owed the king an insurmountable debt, which is, which is why it's so absurd what he says. To buy time, he says, I just need time to get your 10,000 bags of gold. But with time, I'll get you your 10,000 bags of gold. It's coming and it's all yours when I get it. Just a little bit of time. There is no way any man would ever be able to repay such dramatic debt. And so it was absurd just to ask for more time. But surprisingly, the king doesn't just give him more time. The king gives him his life back. The king says, not only will I, will I set you free, I forgive your debt. And he canceled the debt. He wrote it off of his own books. 
and the man was free to go. But this is what happens next. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? I believe we have one more, do we not? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should, until he should pay back all that he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So how much did the second servant owe? Anybody remember? The hundred silver coins. Those were denarii, a singular denarius, plural denarii. And a, sing a single silver coin was one day's work. So the average day laborer, like this servant probably was, made one denarius every day. And he owes this man a hundred of them. So if you work 25 days a month, you can imagine this was about a four-month debt that he owed. That's how slavery worked. It was just an economic vehicle, right? So you basically like an indentured servitude. You worked off whatever debt you owed. And so this man just needed to work 100 days for the first servant, and he would be free. It was very much an approachable, doable debt. And so when he says, just give me more time, it's legit. I'll pay it back with more time. He totally would. He could if he was given more time. But the first servant wasn't having it. He choked him, grabbed him by the neck. He said, pay me what you owe me now. He punished this man for the debt that he owed. Even though moments before the king had forgiven him his extraordinary debt, he couldn't even forgive this ordinary debt that was owed to him. That's why the king was so upset in the story. That's why the king is so appalled. It's appalling behavior. It's a weird kind of narcissism that took over this first servant because he was forgiven of so much and just a moment later, he forgot about it and he took all of his rage, all of his anger, all of his feelings of unforgiveness out on the second servant. He was forgiven, but he wasn't free. So he wasn't in debt anymore to the king but he still lived like a slave to debt. Sometimes forgiveness is offered, but it's not received, right? I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes as Jesus is telling this story as a response to Peter's question. Peter's like, should I forgive my brothers and sisters as many as seven times, Lord? Like a Boy Scout, you know, like a self-righteous Christian. And at first, Jesus' story sounds innocuous. It sounds, it sounds, you know, like another story about how forgiving and friendly God is. But at a certain point, it must have become clear to Peter that he is the first servant in the story. It must have become clear to Peter that this was not going to turn out well for him. But if Peter wasn't sharp enough to pick up on context clues, Jesus makes it abundantly clear at the end of the story with this awful line that I wish wasn't in the Bible. When Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive 
I don't like it when Jesus says mean things. <laughs> I've got Jesus in a nice box. You know what I mean? Let's leave the mean stuff to the Old Testament, and nice Jesus comes along and resolves all of it. Right? Haven't you always heard that Jesus died for everyone's sins? For everyone. It's all done. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, the love of Christ compels us, for we are convinced that one man died for who? For all. It's done. We're all forgiven. We're all free. And so why does Jesus insist on being mean by harping on this connection between God's forgiving us and our forgiving others? Why? Why can't we just be cool? We're forgiven. Why does it depend on us forgiving others? And I'm going to be a little redundant. We talked about this last week. I'm sorry, but it's so important. I think it's, I think it's because until and unless there is a real reckoning in your heart, until you come to a place where you really reckon with every wrong turn you have willingly made, Every bad choice, every selfish thought, every self-destructive act, everything you have done to miss the mark, until you reckon with how bad it was, until you reckon with how deep that hole of sin was for you or maybe is for you, until you have the reckoning, you can never be sure how deep the mercy of God goes for you. And until you are sure of the depth of the mercy of God, you will not be able to show such mercy to others. There is a, a reciprocal relationship between the depth of mercy you understand is yours in Christ and the depth of mercy you're able to show to others. And it's all wrapped around the axle of your salvation, your freedom, your Freedom in Christ. I think that's what's going on in this, um, in this story as Jesus is trying to illustrate something to Peter about his own sinfulness. Peter says, Lord, should I forgive as many as seven times? And Jesus says, Peter, have you sinned more than seven times? It's not a question Peter wanted to answer. Many people I know, many people in this room probably, are really turned off by Christians who talk about sin all the time. Some of you took an extended hiatus from church because all you ever heard in church was how bad you are. Some of you have friends who swear they will never step foot in church again because of all the shame, all the guilt, all the bad stuff. And it does seem sometimes that Christians are overly obsessed with sin. And it's true. <clears throat> I can't deny. Sometimes we Christians get carried away Here's the, here's the problem with talking about sin is when all you do is talk about everybody else's, <laughs> not your own. And that's where Christians get it wrong. Talking about sin is okay. Jesus did it all the time. So we shouldn't not talk about sin just because it makes us uncomfortable. What we should avoid is talking about everybody else's sins but mine. <clears throat> because that's really, that's really what, what, I, what I want, right? Like, I, I want my sin to be dealt with according to, to mercy, right? Which is, which is basically mercy by definition is, is not getting what 
you deserve. But I want everybody else's sin to be dealt with according to justice, which I, I, I want God to treat others justly, which is getting what you deserve. But I want my sin to be dealt with according to mercy, right? And sometimes that's how Christians act, like everybody else deserves justice. We as Christians deserve mercy, and that's the end of it. But that's not how Jesus approached sin. He was bringing up people's sins all the time, just like he did with Peter. But listen, this is so important. He did not show Peter the depth of his sinfulness to show Peter what a bad person he is. Jesus doesn't talk about sin to convince you that you're bad. Jesus doesn't believe that people are essentially bad. Listen, I don't care what you've heard, contrary to popular belief, the Bible doesn't say people are essentially bad. Christianity doesn't profess that people are essentially evil or bad or broken. Our essence is the opposite of all of those things because the Bible says we're created in the image of a good and perfect God. Your essence isn't bad, it's perfect. You are not a bad person. You were made in the image of God, a daughter and a son of the most high, most perfect God. That's your true essence. The reason we talk about sin isn't to make you feel bad about yourself or say you're bad. The reason we talk about sin is to remind you you were created good. Something has gone wrong. But the hope of the gospel is that you can be made good again. He came to restore us. He came to heal us. It's good news, not bad. And that's something that the church has at times gotten wrong, but I pray we can get it right. In John chapter 8, there's this awesome um, story. This is not a parable. It's actually happened. Jesus was mid-sermon, right about where I am right now. Mid-sermon, and there's a commotion in the temple where he's teaching in Jerusalem. Imagine like the doors flying open and all this noise and people, there's screams and hollers, and, and a group of men are dragging a woman in by her hair. She's half naked. She's been caught in the act of adultery. She's devastated and terrified because everyone knows that the Old Testament, the Bible at the time, called for such a woman to be stoned to death. It's undeniable. It's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Actually, it called for both participants in adultery to be stoned to death. I don't know where the man went. Maybe he was a fast runner or maybe he had connections. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe he was like the priest's son or something. That happens sometimes. Um, who knows? But it's just the woman. And the Pharisees stand there. The teachers of the law, they stand there. Stones in hand at the ready. Because the Bible says this woman deserves. That's what justice looks like. Someone who breaks covenant with their spouse. They deserve this kind of death. And so they stand there and they say, Jesus, Rabbi, you know what the Bible says. Shouldn't we do what the Bible says? If you give us the order, we will carry it out. Jesus is on to them, however. John chapter 8 says that they're trying to trap him. Here's the trap. Roman law said at the time, and Romans were the occupying force in Jerusalem, Roman law said that no one except a Roman official could authorize the death penalty. And so if Jesus tells them to carry out what the Bible says, 
and they'll do it, they'll kill her, and then they'll go tell the Romans that this man Jesus told them to kill her, and, and they'll have him arrested right where they want him. On the other hand, if he doesn't tell them to carry out the Bible, they'll tell all their constituents and all of his followers that this man doesn't really believe the Bible's true. You see the conundrum. But Jesus is the Lord of the third way, and he gets down on his knees and writes in the dirt for a second. Nobody knows what he wrote. I'm open to suggestions if y'all have any guesses. Nobody knows what he wrote. And then he stood back up and he looked into the eyes of these teachers of the law who should get it more than anyone. He looks into their fearful, vengeful, opportunistic eyes. And he says to them some of the most important words you'll ever hear if you really choose to hear them. Some of the most important words in the Bible. Some of the most often forgotten words by people bearing Jesus' name. He says, whichever one of you has never sinned is free to throw the first stone at her. And then it says that one by one, starting with the oldest man among them. I don't know if he had more sin or just more sense or whatever, but he started it. He dropped his stone. And then all the others followed, and they walked away. And Jesus looked at the woman who was there, still terrified, still exposed and vulnerable. And he said to her, who is here to condemn you? And she said, no one is here left to condemn me. And, and he said, neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go and leave your life of sin. And there it is again. You think he said that to make her feel bad about herself? You think he said that to further enslave her to religion? He said that to remind her of who she, who she really is and whose she really is. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, it's very easy for us in that story to demonize those evil religious men and to identify ourselves with the woman in the story. It's what I've always done. I don't know why, but I've always kind of seen myself in her place. I'm the one Jesus rescued. I'm the victim here. You know, I'm the one in need of mercy. Yeah, I mess up sometimes, but Jesus rescues me from those bad guys out there. But if you really take a step back and look at this story, what does it tell us about ourselves? Man, I like, I like holding rocks. I like having my stone at the ready. I like being judgmental. It's cathartic. I can't deny it. Am I the only one? Please tell me I'm not the only one. Y'all stop being self-righteous up in this place. The only thing better than being judgmental is having your prejudices proven right by whoever you've been judging. That's the only thing more cathartic. I'm not even talking about your enemies. I'm talking about probably the person you're sitting next to right now if you're a couple. <laughs> I'm man, I'm telling you, real talk, real talk. All right, so whenever I preach about whatever I preach about in a series, right, I always, like, come under spiritual attack based on whatever that is. It's just universal truth. And so with forgiveness, um, I've been put to the test. My wife, Giovanna, and I, we've not had the smoothest five weeks. That's all I'm saying. It's not, you don't have to worry. You don't have to, like, you don't have to, you don't have to freak out or anything. Pastor Eric and Gio, we're staying together. We're good. But I was telling you, 
been a little volatile lately. And so here's the thing, though. Here's a really good way to measure how you're doing in your relationships. If you find yourself rooting for them to mess up how you always knew they would mess up, Man, I'm telling you, Giovanna was driving the other day, and I was in the passenger seat, and I knew she was going to miss that turn. She always misses, and I saw it coming. Do you think I warned her? Heck no. I wanted her to miss it. I didn't care if we were going to be later. I didn't care. 20 minutes later, I don't care. I could have warned her. I could have told her it was coming. Nope, I wanted to be right. I didn't want to be on time. I wanted to be right. If you're looking for a way to measure how you're doing as a Christian, that's pretty much it. How forgiving, how forgiving a person are you? Because the, the, the limit to, to which you're willing to go to forgive someone who's wronged you is a good indication of how forgiven you really have been by God. Now, believe me when I tell you, you've been fully forgiven by God, but receiving that forgiveness, uh, that's up to us. I carry stones around with me all the time. Stones represent justice. And justice feels so good when it happens to somebody else. And I want justice for others, but I want mercy for me. I want my debts to be forgiven, but I sometimes enjoy holding other people's debts over their heads. There's something empowering about it, or it seems to be. When Jesus tried to warn us about that way of thinking. He said that's kind of a highway to hell, kind of a, a way of thinking. Jesus said it's it's really easy to tell how someone's doing with God just by looking at how they're doing with others. And if that kind of prejudice takes over your soul, that kind of pride, that kind of vengeance, where all you want is to be right, all you want is to win a fight, and all you want is to make a point, you've got all these stones in your, in your arsenal that you just can't let go of because deep down you've become convinced that that's the kind of person you are. That's who you really are. It's just in your nature. My daddy was stubborn, so I'm stubborn. My daddy ran onto baseball fields and little league games and got thrown out. Now I do. You know, I'm not even the coach. <laughs> right, CJ? Anybody. So he's the coach for the other team that I ran out on the field against yesterday. So the, it's a lot of forgiveness, a lot of forgiveness that I need. But man... It will take over your heart when you think you deserve forgiveness and no one else does. And the gospel says that way of thinking is not really who we are. That is not your nature. That is a corrupted, perverted form of your true identity. The gospel says you were created in your true nature to be loving and humble, sacrificial, and forgiving because you're made in the image of a God who is love, who is forgiveness, who is humility, who is a sacrifice on the cross for all of us. That is your truest nature, and that Friends, that is why it feels so good when forgiveness finally comes home and you finally let go and you finally let go of that grudge that you've been holding. That's why it feels good. It's like a homecoming to who you've always been, to who you really are. That's why it feels so right because that's your true essence as a child of God. 
In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul put it this way. He said, that, however, was not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth of Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to be made new, to be remade in the attitude of your minds, to put on your new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus came to restore us to our true identity, to restore you to your true nature. And I think you'll agree with me if you look around the world around you, this city that we live in doesn't need more Christians who point the finger at everybody else while thinking we're high and mighty. This city does not need more Christians who say or believe or think the right things with rocks in our hands. The city does not need one more Christian who is dogmatically correct. This world, this city needs more Christians who are like Jesus, who are willing to be loved instead of to be right, who are willing to forgive instead of to threaten or to hold on. You see, when God remakes you, forgiveness is no longer just lip service. It's not just behavior modification. You're not forgiving in spite of your human nature. You're forgiving because of your human nature. Forgiveness becomes your default setting because it's has always been your default setting, just corrupted by sin, freed from sin, forgiven. It is now, once again, who you really are. When you realize the depth of debt you racked up and the extent of God's mercy with you, every day you wake up, you just can't wait to find another opportunity to be merciful with someone else. It overflows from your heart into theirs. We all agree that forgiveness is good, But how forgiving should we really be? At what point does your will to forgive become weakness? Jesus says never. Because the more you forgive, the more powerful you become, the more influential you become, the more like Jesus you become. Who is the person you judge the most? Whose name might as well be on this rock? Or what group of people do you see on the news or on the streets and You're suddenly filled with all kinds of feelings like you want to stock up on rocks to throw. How's that prejudice working out for you? How's that pain, that vengefulness working out for your peace of mind? The stones that we carry only serve to hold us back from becoming the people we really are. The stone in your hand right now represents whatever bitterness or resentment has kept you from your rebirth in Christ. And today in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I proclaim that it ends now. If that is the desire of your heart, that resentment has no power over you anymore. It ends now. Let today be a new start. We're going to We're going to exemplify that new start during this time of communion where I'm just going to ask you, don't do this if you don't mean it. So if you're just here 
to listen and you're, you're not really into this yet, just you don't have to do this. But I'm telling you, if your heart is in this, I want you to bring your rock forward with you to communion. Or if you go to the back stations, bring your rock to your communion station. And before you come to receive the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus that's symbolized in the bread and the cup, take your rock and drop it in one of these baskets. And they're found at every communion station. And when you do, let the Holy Spirit heal that void in you and fill that place that used to be full of anger and unforgiveness with grace and with healing. That old stuff you've been carrying around, it will never satisfy you. But what you receive in its place will always satisfy your heart because this is who you really are.